Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out-of-the-box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman. So, Zach, hey, good morning. Uh, Good morning, Susan. So glad to have you on this show. You, um, You are like the first, I think you're the very first person that I saw put uh, that in my world anyway put peace building on his business mm-hmm. card, and I remember looking at it and going, <laughs> "Wow, that's pretty cool." He just put that right on his business card. <laughs> yeah, and it was uh, it was important for me that it be on there. It was a whole discussion with colleagues and really thinking it through. So it's funny that you should remember that, though. What was it? I mean, I don't know. That's interesting. What was the mm-hmm. what was the well, discussion? So Right. So I was joining uh, this organization called Consensus, which is my consulting firm. And at the time, they were working in negotiation and collaboration and conflict resolution, more interpersonally and organizationally, domestically. And I was coming from the Center for International Conflict Resolution at Columbia. And I was really framing the work that I did at Columbia as peace building more and more, even though when we first started working there, it was actually called conflict resolution. And so when I came on board at Consensus, I said, I feel really strongly that what I want to contribute to this organization is the development and growth and, and direction of, of a peace building practice. And they said, Oh, that sounds good. What does that mean? <laughs> and I say, give me a, give me a few years and we'll, we'll, we'll define it. Uh, and so there was a discussion around like, what does it mean? And, and the nomenclature, but also when somebody sees it, what does that mean to them if they're not necessarily in our field? And, uh, but I felt really good about the. What will it mean to the corporate world, for instance? Cause yeah, I know- what it means. Yeah, exactly. What does it mean for the corporate world? Um, but interestingly enough, I mean, as you're, as I'm sure you're, you're developing in in your interviews over time, like the the frame peace building or that that concept and um, nomenclature is itself evolving and contested and and has its own internal um, discussions, you know, related to it. So. To say that you quote do peace building is it in and of itself an interesting move to make because it's not like saying I'm a doctor you know or I'm a lawyer and sort of people know what that means uh, it's it's really an evolving concept and evolving professional practice and uh, paradigm which is one of the things I love about it but it also is tricky if you're trying so to yes, have an elevator so what kind of reactions do you get? Because you travel definitely in yeah. the peace building world, and we can talk about that. But you also do travel to all right. kinds of Wall Street clients and yeah. uh, corporate clients, and and they look at your business card. Uh, any any stories to tell, or any reactions that they, you know, mm-hmm. that you hear about that? Yeah, the 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 classic reaction is, oh, that's interesting, uh, and I sort of think what I want to say is, oh, what's interesting about that to you? 
Um, and, and usually what's interesting to people is that they don't know what it means, but it sounds like a good thing. Well, first, what does your business card say exactly? Because that's one thing it says, but what's the total thing that it yeah, says? I mean, so the, I guess the title that we use for consensus is Director of Peacebuilding Practice. In addition to be a, being a partner, I'm, I'm the director of this peacebuilding practice. Okay. And then um, it notes that we do uh, negotiation, conflict resolution, communication, and peacebuilding. And um, so the reactions I get range, you know, but mostly it's just, oh, that's interesting. And, um, and, <laughs> and you have no and idea then, what's going in there, going through their mind. Right. It's, exactly. And, uh, and I agree with them. It is interesting, you know. So, um, so in that world, it, it, it definitely can spark some interest. And people usually equate anything related to peace that is a professional practice with mediation mm -hmm. or negotiation. And I can be, you know, I was at a dinner party the other day and some friends were sitting around the table trying to figure out what I do. And, uh, <laughs> and they said, so what was the hardest situation you ever negotiated, you know, between warring factions and I said, yeah, so I don't really do that. <laughs> and they were, then it was re even harder for them to get their heads around it. And so we, it takes longer to describe what we do in this field. Um, and if people are open to that, it could be really interesting. But often the complexity of both what we do and I think how we talk about what we do can be challenging for even colleagues, let's say in the development field or in humanitarian assistance in action, um, security studies, you know, even other people that work in international affairs, which is what peace building is fundamentally a part of, in my view, which I guess even itself could be contested. <laughs> you know, even folks who kind of work in, in parallel programming efforts can really struggle with what is it that you guys do and what is it that you don't do because you can't do everything. So how about for the listeners you actually at this point say it, when you introduce mm -hmm. yourself, what do you say that you – could you give me the, you know, the, the high-level summary of, of uh, yeah. what you do? Yeah. So what I do is in the peacebuilding realm, support, engage with, train, and advise – key institutional actors who are working in conflict-affected societies. So the environment is conflict-affected societies, countries, regions. That's where peace building happens. And the stakeholders are key institutions. For instance, obviously governments, UN agencies, uh, non-governmental organizations, and even things like media, folks who are doing media, um, and, and it's a really wide range. And what we're, we're working with them on, what peace building is, is essentially focused on is, is sort of two layers. One is how do you make what you're already doing more sensitive to conflict or what we call conflict sensitive? So how do you make the development efforts that you are implementing or your media – efforts in journalism or your educational efforts or your negotiation efforts to be more aligned to the complex and um, risky conflict dynamics of a particular place. 
So how do you do that? And how, what are the tools to understand those conflict dynamics? And what do you do once you understand those dynamics to align your own programming efforts? And then secondly, how do you intervene as a key institution to address long-term conflict in effective ways. So what are the things that can be done? And those things that can be done can range from sort of the classic image that people have of mediation um, all the way to rethinking how you install water and sanitation programs in rural areas of Pakistan. And literally everywhere in between, every social institution, every uh, cultural norm can be either a catalyst for violence or a incubator and um, resource for sustainable peace. And how do and you so, even yeah. begin to put boundaries around something like that? <laughs> <laughs> right. So what we, the way that we put bound, the way I put boundaries around it is to say, I'm looking opportunistically and there are, you know, while I've sort of described almost everything under the sun, obviously there aren't opportunities in every single sector and there isn't openness and... Um, ripeness. And ripeness for using a particular vector for, for intervention. So, I mean, one of the things that peace building sort of grapples with, I think, or at least I grapple with, is how sort of intentional and systemic are we and systematic versus how opportunistic and and to use a, a term that I borrow from a mentor of mine who you know, Andrea Bartoli, how um, serendipitous. He will be a, a guest on the show. <laughs> very good. Mm -hmm. Very good. I mean, a word that I, in a kind of paradigm that I've learned from him over the last 20 years or so, 15 years, is the notion of peace building as a serendipitous intervention, which doesn't mean random or mystical. It means um, finding opportunities and moments of ripeness to bring in a new resource or a new idea or to bring parties together who are clashing, who for this moment have an opportunity and it's a serendipitous opportunity to come together. Um, so the boundaries are. Can I just not, say something about that yeah, to interrupt you? Sure, sure. You know, it's so it's it, it's so in in line. You know how deeply I've been trained in Gestalt, and you know it, whether you're intervening in a small system or a very large complex system like a country or a region right. that's been in conflict, uh, a Gestalt approach would be to scan the entire system and look for a point of entry, whether it's between. Right you know, at the top of the system with the leader or with a large group inside the system or with a dyad where you might do mediation. But, but, the, but, the, but the premise is that you can do, once you understand what the dynamics are in the system, you can work that issue at any level of system. So, uh, and you can, and so I'm hearing you talk about this, like, where do you go in? Where are these, I forget the language you use, the opportunities or the Vectors, the yeah. vectors. I mean, I I could imagine that you wherever there's energy, you can intervene and do the Correct. same work there as you could anywhere, um, and fruitfully. Right. So. 
I, I believe that to be true, um, and that's how I think about my own efforts. Um, that said, I think you know there are two big trends that I see happening right now in the field, and I think they're they're good at some le- you know in, in lots of ways. One is really trying to systematize and be more rigorous about either creating those opportunities or identifying them, um, and sort of just being more sy- systematic and more systematized. Um, and so, for instance, in an effort that I'm, I've been a part of at UNICEF, uh, which is a you know major UN agency, is about really helping UNICEF program staff think systemically and systematically about how their ongoing efforts in uh, development work or humanitarian work or other kinds of you know uh, um, interventions that UNICEF is a part of and supports, how those could be twinned with a peace-building uh, approach or done through a peace-building lens. So there is a, a movement to, uh, not, not just at UNICEF, but around the world to be more systemic and strategic. And then the second thing is um, that obviously every, every actor, like say, who works as a peace-building practitioner, myself or others, can't have skill at every level. You know, and so you have to also think about where's my particular niche, my value added. And John Paul Lederach talks about this, that you need to really think about sort of who am I in this system? What's my what value add to this? What's my value add and what do I not do, right? Because partnering with other practitioners or institutions is itself a skill, mm. you know, and that ability to collaborate and share levels of intervention um, or just get out of each other's way. And that's where this whole idea of herding cats came from, was that there were so many actors trying to do different kinds of interventions around peace building or conflict resolution that people actually were getting in their own, each other's way. Okay, yeah. um, but um, The Nepali earthquake, that's not a peace building uh-huh. situation. But yeah, the stories about how many planes landing in Kathmandu, um, right. you know, just um, yeah. how crazy that was. Well, right. And, and it's not even, doesn't even need to be that, explicit in a way I can tell you that I, 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 you know, so I worked in Iraq for many years back and forth, not over, over, you know, straight through, but I was, me and and colleagues were in Iraq for many years from the start, the end of the war, quote unquote, till about 2006 or seven. And there were many times where I would come in and do a training for a group of, of, of counterparts in a particular methodology or skill set, And they would say, Oh, this is really great. This reminds me of what, um, you know, safer world did with us last last week. You know, and I would say, oh, well, okay, what what did what was that? Or Mercy Corps or UNDP or whoever it was. I say, oh, that's interesting. What was that? And they'd show me the materials, and I'd say, oh, that looks very familiar. And then, you know, and they'd say, oh yeah, search for common ground. They're coming next week. You know, and they're, <laughs> you know, and and colleagues, you know, let's say Iraqi colleagues were sort of like, okay, well, maybe this is just how the international community ro- runs. You know, where you just kind of keep coming and delivering your thing and it, it always seemed like missed opportunities like uh, you know it's fine for all these different players to be working but there's a lack of there has historically been a lack of collaboration um and it could be kind of comical you know so how's that, that being dealt with now like what you said there's some well, right. effort to be more systematic what's your what's right. uh, what do you see I mean, a couple of things that have emerged one is um organizations like the alliance for peace building um which is you know it didn't just didn't just form has over a decade plus of of 
of track record. But a lot of what the Alliance for Peacebuilding is trying to do is not coordinate efforts, but, but connect practitioners and organizations so that they can be more, more in synergy, more collaborative, et cetera. I mean, it's not that they're a clearinghouse, but they are a, a hub. Um, and then similarly in, the, in, in Europe, there's, um, I guess, called the Euro- European Institute for Peace and other players that can act kind of as a space for practitioners to connect. Um, and I don't, that doesn't, it's not hyper systematic, but it, it's an effort towards. Are they trying to summarize yeah. what the different, different initiatives are so that people are aware, mm-hmm. just build awareness? Is that- so from time, yeah, from time to time, that that does get done, and I, I always feel like that's a bit of a. It, it's very interesting that day, right? That the report comes out, or that you do the summit, or whatever. It's a really interesting moment to say, like, who's working in East Timor today, or who's working on Afghanistan, or who's working in Iraq, or whatever, um, and then, you know, obviously the day after, it starts to become less relevant because people and organizations are sh- constantly shifting and changing and the context changes. So I, I don't know that it's super helpful to have a static map of what people are doing, but it, I'm sure that there are also efforts to track that in real time and have more of, a, more of a, an ongoing discussion. So those are some organizations that are doing that work. The other thing, you know, just to sort of come back to the boundaries question is that um, so – CDA, which is an organization that's been an absolute. What's uh, that stand for? So <laughs> they actually never use the full name. Uh, they just say CDA. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess it's the Collaborative Development Associates or something to that effect. But it's, it's been around so long that they just use the, the acronym and, and folks know it. Uh, it's under the, the sort of stewardship and, and, and vision of um, Mary Anderson. And what they say. And they've been, as I said, been a, a, a luminaries in this field and really, really helping define key paradigms for well over a decade, I'd say 15, 20 years. Um, originally from primarily a development standpoint and now more and more broader peace building um, sort of thinking. And what they say in terms of boundaries to your earlier question is that if a peace building initiative doesn't connect to what they call peace writ large, um, which is broad-based, systemic, um, social transformation and, 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 and structural transformation. If you don't have a linkage between your intervention and broader transformative efforts at structural and cultural and socioeconomic levels, um, you have almost no impact. Um, that the impact is negligible and because of that actually you can be doing harm at some level because you can be drawing resources away from that, that comment it kind of I feel it in my gut yeah. it's like ugh, and, I, and yeah. I'm not sure I believe it but and, yeah. and I'm curious of course to hear where they came up with that uh-huh. that conclusion because of course that's a right. very difficult thing to track <laughs> well, right, and they're—they've all—I mean—they've put their money where their mouth is, and they really have done years and years of intensive research uh, of various kinds to basically um, try to clarify exactly what you're saying. You know, how do we, how do we, how do we track that? But also, how do, how do we make that case? And I think that um, they've come up with some, you know, interesting and very persuasive. 
I mean, the reason data. I don't believe it, sorry to interrupt you, but the reason I don't yeah. believe it is because that would mean that any time you intervened in any complex system, you always have to intervene, you have to intervene at the, the largest present system. And I don't think that's true. I think you can right. do so, amazing work at very small parts of the system and have it start percolating. But anyway, mm-hmm. to keep to, uh, yeah. well, right. So they're not they're not exactly saying, and it's a little bit you know tricky to talk about someone else's yeah. work, of course. Yeah. But but it's a work that I really value and, mm. and I'm interested. in. They're not saying every intervention must be with you know at a systemic level. It, they're saying every intervention must link up to and support a systemic and and sort of higher level um, uh, change process. So they're not saying that small or smaller level or lower level interventions don't matter. They're saying unless you have a theory of change and data that supports a connection to the bigger picture, you are very likely not having any kind of um, real impact. So the, the distinction is important. They're not saying uh, working with a small NGO in the bush of Mozambique doesn't matter. They're saying that unless that somehow connects and it's explicitly connected to broader change, um, you're going to have negligible out, uh, impacts. Now, I have a, a separate critique uh, of this particular paradigm. While it's something that guides my work in, in, and I teach it literally – at uh, Columbia University to, to students at the School of International and Public Affairs. I mean, it's at the heart. Which, why you say that you are what you are, yeah. the fact, what, what's your title there? So, right. So, I'm, a, I'm an adjunct uh, professor of international affairs at Columbia at the School of International and Public Affairs. And I've been teaching a course there called Applied Peacebuilding, core, uh, core concepts or core competencies for fieldwork for about um, – uh, since 19, sorry, since 2001. So I've taught the, that course there since 2001. So the dilemma that I see and that I've been grappling with, I don't have easy answers around this, is essentially that if we use a classic peace building and peace writ large orientation as we're doing our work in deeply intractable conflicts like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, more and more Syria, um, and then historically Northern Ireland, uh, Myanmar, and others that really had a deep structural and cultural and socioeconomic uh, um, sort of structure to the conflicts. The challenge is that we end up actually losing opportunities that present themselves because we're constantly looking for and striving for transformation at such a high level, which gets resisted by the intractability paradigm of the, of the conflict. And so what I'm interested in and what I've seen operating on the ground is what I call peace writ small. And I use this kind of as a way to guide my own thinking and a little bit of my, my research, but also my practice. And what I mean by peace writ small is that y- you can see in every conflict-affected society, in every conflict system, that there are people interacting in ways that are really counter to the bigger intractability narrative and, and structure. That there are people interacting in authentic ways 
and there are people doing work together that really don't fit into the notion of a completely polarized society or country or region. And I, th- and I have many examples of those, but I think that what we need to be doing is in a way privileging those as important and interesting and in need of support and attention. Be- kind of taking an appreciative inquiry style right approach it, it it yes you could certainly say that is where you know appreciative inquiry is all about putting your attention in the direction of strengths and opportunities and and having that lead your your thinking and your work and it's somehow similar um and obviously in an intractably an intractably con- violent and conf- and conflict affected society you're not pretending that there isn't something really grim happening right here and you're not doing and you are you are trying to do other kinds of change strategies um, or even just um, p- ceasefires. But at the same time, I think that there are really interesting and significant moments that are quite small that indicate something is possible and that indicate something is happening. And we as practitioners need to be attuned to that because otherwise we will – always feel like we're failing and our counterparts and partners in these conflict-affected societies will feel like we don't have anything to, to provide or that there's something you know, significantly wrong with their society where there's no opportunities for change. Um, and, so, and also I will say that I think when those, what I'd call those smaller units of work, that mm-hmm. would be my language, mm-hmm. are addressed and they're addressed well, uh, it does unleash <clears throat> energy in a system. Um, if one is paying attention to that, Mm -hmm. that it's hard to, it's hard to assess it in a completely rational way, but it, it can have tremendous impact, um, psychologically, spiritually, motivationally. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and the folks, for instance, at, at CDA who've been thinking about the, the concept of peace writ large for so long and have really helped us grapple with that, do talk about, um, this in a way they talk about something called, they say, Peace writ little, uh, which which is sort of lower lower in the sort of system chain uh, interventions, and they also talk about smaller interventions that quote can add up to the broader systemic change. And I think those are those are both right uh, uh, to look at and to grapple with. I'm talking about something different and a little bit more. Um, in a way, conceptual. Uh, and this comes out of my work with uh, my uh, dissertation advisor and mentor, a guy named J- uh, Jeffrey Goldfarb, who teaches at the New School uh, for Social Research and Sociology. And what he talks about is the politics of small things. And it's such a profound um, uh, way of looking at social interaction and political uh, interaction, in essentially saying that while big systems and large-scale change really matters. For instance, the collapse of communism in Poland, which was something that he studied, uh, where the action is prior to those systemic changes is very small. So, for instance, he studied alternative and avant-garde theater in communist Poland before uh, solidarity really took off and made radical change. Mm. And he said... And I think very persuasively that at the site of avant-garde and radical theater in in pre-changed 
Poland, you had very politically meaningful interactions and very politically and socially significant moments of, of uh, transformation. And I apply that to our work in peace building in deeply intractable settings. And, and I find that that is, in fact, you can see these sites of curious and important interaction. And sometimes it's planned and, and structured, as in the work of myself and others, where we're bringing together, for instance, you know, police uh, and and civil society leaders and government leaders in Northern Ireland, and we gather them together, and then we have an interaction. But so sometimes it's planned and it's structured, and you can ha- you can see emerging these 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 small but important um, uh, moments. And other times, and I would think probably most of the time, it's it's not planned and it's not necessarily a part of an inter- intervention. But in both cases, whether it's planned and, and structured and, and an attempt on the part of, a, of an actor to create change or when it's just serendipitous, I think that we also need to be carefully paying attention to those moments um, and supporting them and nurturing them and almost privileging them as important in the in primarily intractable environments. And this, again, is informed by Peter Coleman's work, who's really laid out some very important um, models that help us understand the power of intractability, which is different than the power of conflict. Mm-hmm. It, it is a really different thing um, with its own engines and its own power and its own sort of narratives that is different than episodic conflict or even war. Um, it's about a culture that gets overtaken by com- by conflict and violence, and and those those dynamics get embedded into pretty much every every social institution and interaction. Well, I uh, inevitably will get Peter on this show to talk about that <laughs> specifically, and I'm thinking um, it would be really interesting for the listeners to hear if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, time goes by so fast. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, do you think you can tell a story? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. I think that would be really terrific to I'm, hear something. Spe- I mean, what you've been saying is s- super interesting. And I don't know if you can weave it mm-hmm. with what you've been saying. But, yeah, a story sure. uh, of some piece of work that you've done and, um, and what, what, you felt was, what you felt went well, what you would do differently. Any, anything that you want to say about it, I'm sure would be <laughs> great. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to tell a story. And this is a story I've, I've – I've told in a number of different venues, including in my own sort of research and writing uh, and in sort of dissertation work. And so it's not the first time, but it is one that really, I think, captures this, what we're trying to talk about here today. So <clears throat> the story takes place in Iraq and in, the, in, in around 2005, 2005, 2006. I was doing a lot of work there with colleagues um, – from Colombia and elsewhere, and we were specifically working with development agencies and civil society organizations and universities to basically try to provide them a, some space and some ideas and some resources and 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 other uh, other things that they needed to help them align their work to a peace building 
uh, to peace building efforts. So it was a very eclectic group of people that we worked with and we were doing all kinds of different things with them and uh, over a course of several years. So in one of the uh, efforts that we did, we brought together a pretty diverse group of people who were you know, coming from civil society, but also some of them business and um, some of them had been teachers and all of them were interested in somehow being involved in a peace building efforts in, in Iraq uh, in, a, in, in, in a, actually in a professional setting. So they wanted to be involved in, in organizational efforts. And we did several days of training in conflict resolution, peace building, uh, conflict assessment, and other sort of tools and strategies that would very much connect to what we call peace writ large. In fact, I think I probably taught the concept and had people really think through what would peace writ large look like in Iraq. So that happened. And then uh, so let's say it's a five-day effort altogether. And at the end, we did, uh, I think, an open space, and uh, which is a facilitated process in which groups self-define their agenda and then self-facilitate their discussions. And at the final moments of open space, usually what you do is bring people together for a closing circle and have everybody reflect on what they're taking away from this conversation and what they want to do about what they're taking away. And it's usually a nice way to bring some synergy and, and closure and a sense of accomplishment to, to a group. So we sat in a circle with about 20, 25 Iraqis, myself and other colleagues from the United States and from Europe and, and whatnot. And we did a closing circle. And when you do uh, open space closing circle, you always, most of the time, you have some sort of symbolic thing that people pass from person to person so that when the person's speaking, they're holding this thing and everybody else is listening and not interrupting or commenting and you sort of don't have a, it's not a discussion, it's a sharing. The thing that we were using was an olive branch that I had cut with permission <laughs> from, <laughs> from a tree in, in this gardens of this uh, facility where we were doing the, uh, the, the initiative. And uh, so we had this fresh piece of, uh, of uh, olive branch and we were passing it from person to person. And one of the norms that we had put in place for this entire training was everybody's going to speak in their own language most of the time we will have translation into Arabic. Now, the reason this is important is because in Iraq, like in most countries, there are lots of different languages that are spoken. Arabic is by far the most uh, prevalent, obviously, but also Kurdish of various um, uh, versions of, of Kurdish are also prevalent, particularly in the north. And then there are several others. Uh, one is called Turkmen. Uh, one is called uh, Assyrian. So there are other languages that are spoken and spoken by significant populations. So in the closing circle, we said, this time we're not going to translate anything. Just speak in your own language from the heart, and that's it. And everybody will be just fine. <laughs> and so the branch is going around, and people are speaking mostly in Arabic, um, and they're sharing, and it's very powerful. And... Um, one woman takes the branch uh, from her colleague and she starts speaking not in Arabic but in a language called Turkmen, and, um, which is not the same. And in the middle of what she had to say, an older gentleman basically shouted at her, 
you need to be speaking Arabic. This is Iraq. We speak Arabic. If you're an Iraqi, you should speak Arabic. Don't speak that you know, minority language. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a really electric moment because linguistics obviously hold, you know, what we speak has a lot to do with our identity and our identity has a lot to do with how the nation either comes together or doesn't, how we deal with pluralism, how we deal with these issues. And, it, and that's it's a little bit like the U.S., if, you know, it's America speak English. Well, right. It's similar. Um, it has a, it has other other things connected to it having to do with how previous regimes used Arabic to divide and conquer. Um, it has to do with nationalisms of various minority groups using language as a as a important piece of a nationalist project, etc. So, so he shouts at her, and now everyone's looking at me because I'm the facilitator, right? <laughs> They're not looking at her or him. They're looking at me. And I sort of gently remind him and everybody, so we've agreed that it's fine to speak in any language we want. And so for, for now, while I know it, it seems like you feel very strongly about this, I want people to really feel okay about speaking in their own language. And he sort of, you know, grumbled and stopped talking. So she finished what she had to say, and the moment was a bit sort of, yeah, it definitely threw the group off, off a little bit. But then the branch kept going around, and other people had something to say. And But you did something that I think is so powerful in facilitation, mm-hmm. which is just a simple move of holding to the boundaries. Mm-hmm. Well, right, yeah. Thank which you. helps people feel some safety. <laughs> I can tell you I, I, I wasn't quite sure what to do, but that's what mm-hmm. I did. And mm-hmm. thankfully, you know, after having done this for 15, 20 years, maybe on occasion a good, a good instinct pops mm-hmm. into my mind. So, so, so I, I did that, and then, it, then they finished. And then it came about two-thirds ar- around the room to – the guy who had interrupted her, um, and it's this older man, big kind of burly guy. He actually had originally been, I believe, um, a veterinarian for farm animals, like big animals, like horses and, and, and cows and stuff. And so he had like hands of a farm worker, yeah. uh, even mm-hmm. though he had been medical, a uh, medical uh, doctor, you know, working with animals. Anyway, the branch comes to him and he takes the branch and he, before he starts speaking, he starts to say uh, um, a blessing, which is a traditional in Islam it, okay, on, on important occasions or before things get said that are more mundane. It is sometimes for some people traditional to say uh, a short blessing. And it starts with Bismillah and then it goes on to basically say in the name of God, um, uh, I, you know what I'm saying is is sort of in the context of 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 this this appreciation and and blessing for and with God. So he starts to say this blessing, and you can say the short version or the long version. He's obviously going to say something a little bit longer, um, and so he's starting to pray a little bit or or bless, I guess. And in the middle of his own blessing, he stops. And so people jumped in and it's like, okay, well, this is the word next in that blessing. And he holds up his hand for silence and uh, he choked up. He started to cry and he broke down and and said, uh, you know, he looked directly at me and he said, "You, you broke our hearts with this olive branch. You broke our hearts open. And uh, this has been, you know, such a, a powerful moment that we are here together uh, speaking together in our own languages, in our own tongues, and yet we are together. And he 
was crying and other people obviously were crying. And uh, he, he then just, that was it. And he passed the, the branch on to the next person. And it was this absolutely electric moment of what I would consider to be peace writ small in which he was, na- he was enacting and naming something so profoundly unusual in Iraq 2005 or 2006, which is even, would be even more radically uh, um, significant in Iraq 2015 or 2016, mm-hmm. given what's happening today, that uh, you, you simply cannot avoid it. You, you need to notice it as a practitioner, as a, as a person, but as a peace-building practitioner, you need to be thinking, what does this mean uh, yeah, for this person and for the people around this room? What does it mean for my interventions? Um, and, and we need to be thinking about it as important and not as insignificant or ad hoc or just the, the emotions of an old man sitting in a circle. It's not that. It's politically important. Um, and so a lot of what I try to do in my work is actually... I just wanted to say that yeah. that is such a beautiful story, and I'm still with him thinking. Yeah. You know, it seems that he got really triggered by the woman speaking at Turkmen, mm-hmm. and yet then what he reports out is the meaning to him of everybody being there together, speaking in their language. So yeah. it seems like some shift happened in him that was really meaningful to him. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I don't know what you made up about it. I, I think that, no, no, I think that is absolutely right. Um, but I think that that shift wasn't just him, right? Mm-hmm. Because he was expressing what had happened in that room. He wasn't, he wasn't just sort of, he didn't just walk in with that experience. It was right. a product of that experience, and obviously, there are elements of it that are completely unknown to us um, about his his experience of it or what led him to that. But I can say that it was a moment of really a profound um, recognition of what they had done and the importance of it and the um, the optimism that it that it could be a part of. Um, and 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 so. W- what I'm saying is that we need to understand those moments because they're happening all the time. It's not just mm-hmm. in this one story that I've shared with you, uh, but they are happening all the time, and yet they are obscured for two reasons. One, they're out of sight, and pri- they could be very private. But two, I think they seem unimportant, and so we don't pay attention. And I think that while I'm a passionate zealot around the notion of peace building as a part of peace writ large, I also think that that has created a dilemma for us in not paying attention uh, to, you know, again, peace writ, peace writ small or the politics of small things as Goldfarb calls it. Um, but I think, you know, on the horizon for me is how do we, um, how do we make sense of that and how do we help that and nurture it and, 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 and under, you know, understand it as it is and not as I want it to be because Mm -hmm. I don't have empirical data that I think really is where we need to go next. Um, how do you, how do we make it somehow more visible 
more energetic, uh, bigger than even if it's a small thing, how do we give it more sunlight? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And of course, there's a risk because the moment you start to shine sunlight on things like this in conflict-affected societies, Mm -hmm. people can get killed. Right. um, Because they... (laughs) <laughs> they flourish at what Goldfarb calls the kitchen table. They don't flourish in the public square right. for a very important reason. People get dragged away and shot if they attempt this in, in, in public spaces for a very simple reason. They run counter to the conflict uh, narrative and the hegemony of violence. And which group are you in and which, you know, yeah. are you, yeah. And peace is political. So the moment that mm-hmm. he accepts the Turkmen narrative you know, there's this whole collapse of what does it mean to be a nationalist Iraqi or a Shia or a Sunni or whatever. Um, so it's problematic. It's not safe necessarily. So <laughs> that's another problem is that peace can be very risky. So, Zach, um, uh, you know, I, uh, there's so many, so many things we could talk about. And, I, mm-hmm. and I, you're going to have to come back and do this again because uh-huh. there's just so many different things we could talk about. But um, in the time, in, I'm, I'm wondering if you could, for the listeners, say something about what you think, what you see on the horizon for the peace building field, um, where you see it going, what's, what's most exciting to you now. And well, you sort of said what's most exciting to you now. But any comments yeah. about that? Um, where I see it going is uh, it, it's sort of some of the themes that I've spoken about a little bit earlier. One is that there's an institutionalization that I think is very important in the sense that, you know, the the concepts are being codified, grappled with and codified in major, major organizations from UN agencies to the World Bank to, uh, you know, uh, regional organizations like the EU and... And, uh, and let me ask you something about that. Sure. Are you noticing, I mean, one thing that I always think is exciting and have noticed myself, but your thought about how much are you noticing that people are seeing that the patterns that happen in one part of the world... Uh, happen in other parts of the world mm-hmm. and some of the ways of inter- intervening can be, you know, replicable. Yeah. Uh, well, right. And that is in itself a part of the debate right now. Um, so to answer your question, I think that we are seeing a lot of patterns uh, that that show up, for instance, in case studies and, and um, research that is looking to recognize and, and understand patterns. Um, and that helps create more systematized interventions and codified approaches. And I think that's, for the most part, good. However, and I think this is the other major trend uh, that I'm supportive of, which is a critique of oversimplification and over-institutionalization in the sense that you, you run the risk if you're using an intervention in, that worked in Northern Ireland in the 90s and trying to apply it to um, uh, uh, Syria in 2015, you run major risks of basically making things worse because you don't see the context as acutely and as intimately if you're using a pre-crafted strategy. And so there's some, been some important critiques that have from within the field, principally John Paul Lederach's work, and now more recently the work of Severine Atasari and her book Peaceland, which I think is a game changer uh, because it's naming the game, not because it 
she has any radical um, uh, sort of advice. She does have some advice, but mostly why it's a game changer is because she's naming some of the problems that are cropping up in using the same kinds of strategies from one place to another without a really heavy dose of, of questioning. Um, so I guess that, uh, to summarize that, the two themes that I see or, or trends that I see is one, codification and institutionalization, which I think on the whole is good because we're professionalizing and we're starting to have people who have real skills in this area and those skills are not just um, ad hoc, that they're, they're comparable. And at the same time, I see an ongoing kind of critical self-reflection in which we're asking ourselves, you know, <coughs> in which we're asking ourselves, are we, are we, on the one hand, adding as much value as we could, as we can? Are we doing more good, is a term that I like. And on the other hand, are we actually doing no harm, uh, being conflict sensitive and not exacerbating the conflict dynamics that we purport to try to address positively. So I think those are the two trends that I see. And in a way, they're in tension with each other. Um, and I've seen that myself in the field, training practitioners and others. Um, but I think that's a good tension. you know. And I think that the peace-building field is one in which I, my hope is that we will continue to have this commitment to self-reflection, self-critique, questioning our assumptions that doesn't show up in every field, um, but it needs to be in this field because the stakes are so high. And the complexity is so vast. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So any um, final, I mean, sort of giving this, mm -hmm. but any final words of wisdom or final message, you know, anything you want to say, right. to, you know, to the listeners as, as, we, as we sign off? Yeah, I mean, I thought about this a little bit. To me, what I, what I always come back to, you know, when it comes to our practice and this field, it, it sort of boils down to a couple of things. One, um, humility, um, which means I know something and maybe I know a lot and I'm going to bring it and I'm not going to hide it. And I'm not going to pretend that I don't have expertise that I think is relevant. And at the same time, I frame all of that with an enormous amount of humility around the experiences that people are having and the good work that they have done thus far that may or may not have paid off. And so if I think for a moment that I have the answer, I have big problems. Uh, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is patience. Uh, the work of a peacebuilding practitioners tends to not have huge payoff in the moment. Um, the story that I told you from Iraq has stayed with me for many, many, many years. And so that is very satisfying. However, obviously I know that Iraq is struggling mightily with deep, mm -hmm. violent, horrible social and political conflict. Kind of one step forward, it's, five steps back. Exactly. Um, how, you know, and at the same time, I did work on the, some of the conflict issues in Myanmar. At that time, we called it Burma. Uh, more than a decade ago, and I see major changes today. Now, I obviously don't- That are positive. That are very positive, extremely positive, not complete, uh, still many problems. And what do you, about that, you know, do you, what linkages do you make between, and that, that this could open up a whole other thing <laughs> that you don't have time for, but right. any short answer of 
what happened then and what's happening now, like what the linkages are that you make? What my sense is that what happened in the earlier days of work of myself and other practitioners, people like um, Jane Dougherty at Eastern Mennonite University and many, many other peacebuilding practitioners, what I think is that that started to create a bit of a culture around collaboration and um, dialogue and, and, and collaborative negotiation that um, has percolated and permeated to the degree that now that, you know, in the last couple of years that there have been these major political changes, that culture that maybe started to take hold in the last decade or so is now relevant because there is a political space for negotiation between the ethnic nationalities leadership, which is who we were working with at that time, the minority nationalities leadership, the um, the, the national, the, the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi's sort of pro-democracy movement, and then thirdly, the government at, at the time. And so because that work had been in place and had been going on for years in terms of the culture of uh, a collaboration and, and dialogue, I think that when, once there was an opening politically, then those two things came together for you know, positive engagement. Again, I don't want anyone to think that that conflict is solved. Obviously, there are major violent up, upswings in Myanmar today, but they're different than what we saw in the years of the military junta, which was a brutality and a complete sort of shutdown of, of civil society and, and political engagement. So that is really about patience and sort of being open to not knowing where things are going to go over the course of, of, you know, the future. And then do your best work and <laughs> let it go. And then let it go. And then the finally is, is this commitment to relationships, you know, that peace building practice doesn't really work as a parachute intervention um, where you drop in, do something interesting and then leave when it's at its best. It's through, it's done through and with relationships with key stakeholders um, in within uh, countries that are or regions that are struggling with with these conflicts, because those are the folks that really have the sensibilities and can help either bring forward an effort or change it so that it fits better, you know, a local context. So I think relationships with other practitioners, but also with counterparts in society is where we're trying to do some good work. It really always comes down to that. You know, I think that's true for many, many fields, yeah. but it is absolutely true for our field. And probably what you're saying is true for, you know, humility, patience, relationships. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty, once, yeah, that, that's yeah. a pretty good, uh, that's a pretty good frame for, for but you know, I, what yeah. I, the problem is that I've seen a lack of each of those mm -hmm. in, in, in interventions. And whenever one of those things is missing, you tend to have problems. Mm-hmm. So I, I try to really remind myself and my colleagues that, you know, do we have those three things necessary, obviously not sufficient, but definitely necessary for, for something good to happen. Well, Zach, it's been a real privilege to listen to the depth of expertise you have in this field and just, uh, and, and just the exciting work that you've been doing. And um, so I will, uh, the show notes will be there that will make the, you know, that will fill out the references that you've made throughout the, the conversation and your bio will be up there. And, and uh, if people want to contact you, any particular way that you'd like to be contacted? Sure. Um, probably the best way is uh, they can visit 
the website for Consensus, which is okay. uh, consensusgroup.com. Okay. Um, and they can also reach out to me directly through email, Z as in Z, Zebra or Zachary, uh, Z Metz, M E T Z, at consensusgroup.com. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, like I said, Maybe another six months, I'm going to be knocking on your door again to see if you can tell us some more stories. I would be more than happy to. Thanks so much, Susan. All right. right, Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peace Building Podcast. Check out thepeacebuildingpodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions. Please email them to susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. And join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking, innovations, and ideas to take our planet to the next level.